Carlos. What? Who's in the house with us today? Oh, damn it. Like that? Can yeah. I, can I do something? Because I was like, oh, I, I can I record what I wrote and then I can freestyle? Yeah, you can record what you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, okay. <laughs> Firstly, it's an incredible honor to come on this mic and bless y'all with some words. <laughs> so thank you, Chris. The even bigger honor is that I get to introduce the person who I cherish the most in the universe. My brilliant, beautiful, and incredible wife, Hasmin Morales. Hasmin is the chief of staff at the Juilliard School in New York City. Currently serves on the board of both the Little Village Foundation and Inner City Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles, a.k.a. ICIOLA. And most importantly, is the best partner anyone could ask for. What's up, everybody? This is my boy's first time on the mic, so he's a bit nervous. Uh, Hasmin, please introduce yourself. I am Hasmin Morales, chief of staff at the Juilliard School and wife to Brown Enough producer Carlos Hernandez. Today, we're going to deep dive into the world of classical music with my super talented friend, Hasmin Morales. She's going to tell us all about growing up playing mariachi what she is doing to keep the performing arts a diverse space, and how educational institutions need to support the arts. All right, very cute. Now, okay. bless us with who's in the house and, tonight. And then I was going to say, uh, my name is Carlos Hernandez, and this is Brown Enough. Oh, yeah, that's cool. We can keep that. <laughs> my name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough. Stories between black and white. Here we go. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. I think y'all know the drill by now. I start each episode by asking my guests a couple of rapid-fire questions, just to get to know them a little better. And Hasmin came prepared. But that's probably because Carlos told her in advance, so there was some cheating involved. Favorite classical musician? Sounds cliche, but it's still Yo-Yo Ma, maybe a tie for Gustavo Duhamel. Favorite TV, musical, or film? Uh, hard to say a favorite, but one that has stayed with me recently is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Hmm. What's one instrument you wish you learned to play? Jazz piano. What brown artist, musician, actor should the world keep an eye on? Lynette Hanau, star of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Bad Cinderella. Oh, 
We have a Spotify playlist. Who's someone you want to add to the list? It's all brown artists. Uh, he's Brazilian. Hermeto Pascual uh, has been on loop for me these days. You got a track? Uh, Bebe. Bebe. Now, Hasmin recently moved to my birthplace, New York City, the Big Apple, to start her position as the chief of staff for the prestigious Juilliard. Oh, you know, the performing arts school that gave birth to some of the best artists. I'm talking EGOT award-winning artists like actress Viola Davis or the Broadway diva herself, Patti Lapone. You know, no big deal, right? For Hasmin, this is a dream come true. The arts have always been present in her life. I'm talking from the very start. At only three years old, she was taught to play the violin. And later in life, she was taught mariachi, the Mexican genre of music that's mostly composed of string instruments. But if you ask her who her favorite mariachi singer is, it's not Lucha Villa. Or the great Vicente Fernández. The answer is unequivocally going to be her pops, Juan Morales, the man who taught her everything. Do you have a favorite story of either him performing or you performing or both? When I was about 13, my dad uh, was at the time playing with Mariachi Los Camperos as their harpist. And we got the opportunity to play together, um, which is actually something we did quite frequently in my early childhood. Um, And so as a young teenager, it felt like a a healing moment to be able to do that together again um, with in my capacity as a violinist and not just a five-year-old singing angel as it used to be. And we performed together at the Universal Amphitheater during Mariachi Los Camperos' Fiesta Navidad Christmas tour. And I played a piece with him called Estrellita by a Mexican composer named Manuel Ponce. And it is actually a classical piece that was adapted that he arranged for mariachi. Um, and my dad is also a tenor and on top of his instrumental practice. Well, the voice is also an instrument. but um, So he sang and I played the violin uh, to an amphitheater filled with thousands of people. And it felt like a wonderful moment that we shared together. Hasmin's pops, Juan Morales had started playing professionally when he was a student at Arizona State University. He immigrated from Mexico on a student visa to study classical guitar. My dad was a conservatory-trained Mexican, which I think in itself didn't begin as a quest for whiteness, but once he immigrated, that became very clear, that he equated his high level of classical training with his ability to assimilate and the value that he brought to white people. And that was, you know, either 
implicitly or explicitly sort of passed on to me in some way. And so I think that's where some of that, you know, uh, self-loathing feels very extreme, um, but might encapsulate what it it made me feel in terms of my brownness. Um, and, you know, my dad has come such a long way since those early days of my training, but he was certainly a very tough teacher. Um, had very high expectations of me and what I would do. Um, and that has served me very well because I also have very high expectations for myself. Um, and so it's it's been a delicate balance with, with my dad in terms of um, appreciating the vision that he had for me and allowing that not to consume me in some ways. Though father and daughter shared a background of classical training, they did not take the same path. After being poached by a mariachi band leader in the 1980s, Juan Morales left his undergraduate studies and fell in love with the glamorous lifestyle of mariachis. Um, Did you want to learn mariachi or was it forced on you? It was forced on me. But then you learned to love it. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, You know, as I mentioned earlier, because my dad wanted me to have such a strong classical foundation, part of that also included for me an abandonment of my Mexican identity. Because when I started studying more seriously and with white teachers, uh, the fact that mariachi was in my life became a problem. It became a, a, a blockage to my development as a musician and a deterrent to my you know, development of what they perceived as correct technique. And so there was a time in my life that I was very resistant to the idea that I was one, brown and Mexican, and two, from this mariachi lineage. Um, And so it took uh, some powerful experiences to shift that thinking in myself and finally be able to embrace my musical brownness. Mariachi is always present at Hasmin's house. Instead of playing a happy birthday song from any singer, they perform it, just like they did for Carlos's birthday. I'm expecting the same for my birthday. And Hasmin is not the only talented one in her family. Her two sisters, they throw down as well, y'all. One of them is a scientist, and the other one is a historian and filmmaker extraordinaire. Both Harvard graduates, yes. So it is accurate to say that this is a reflection of their parents' hard work and love. Part of why I admire my parents so much and try to model so much of my own life after their values is that they, you know, my dad made a difficult decision uh, when I was about nine years old to leave his performance career and begin a career as an educator. They moved from L.A. up into the Central Valley, and my dad started teaching in public schools. He started teaching mariachi in public schools in Rich Grove and Delano. This is like the heart of the United Farm Workers Union struggles where Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta were fighting for equality for migrant workers. And my parents were working you know, directly within these communities to bring mariachi as a tool for um, for students to connect 
to their homeland. Many of these students were recent immigrants. Um, And also to see themselves in the bigger American picture in the sense that, you know, my parents would make it a point to take their students, well, to first of all, um, hold them very accountable to a rigorous training in mariachi. Not just like, oh, mariachi, you know, it's like a a backyard weekend party music. It's like, no, mariachi is actually serious. You actually have to learn your instrument before you can show up and play successfully in a mariachi. And uh, once you can do that, look at all the places it can take you. So they would, you know, they would bring the kids to Carnegie Hall. They played at the Kennedy Center. They were in residence at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. They would take these children who often had not left their home, many of whom were undocumented and whose parents were so terrified of them leaving Delano to go even to L.A., two hours away, let alone to Washington, D.C. or to New York City, um, and to show them that mariachi actually does belong on our nation's most prestigious stages. And people who play mariachi go on to study at Harvard and at Stanford and UCLA and beyond, and that mariachi is a vehicle for these young people to self-actualize in so many ways and to live their dreams. And so that has always been so inspiring for me to to witness and be part of and my, my own family's impact in, in their community. Here's a beautiful performance of her parents' band called Mariachi Mestizos playing at Carnegie Hall in 2018. <laughs> At some point, you had to decide to do academia and to take that journey. What is that? What is that point where you like? You're like, oh, I'm, I'm focusing here. This is where I'm putting my focus. You know, it's actually a very specific moment that happened when I was about 13 years old. Whoa! <laughs> in a remote ranch in Veracruz. As I mentioned earlier, there was a, a time in my in my youth where I was very resistant to the idea that I actually was a brown person, a Mexican, because I was growing up around uh, predominantly white folks in a white community. And my parents were very alarmed by this. And they also knew that I had a curiosity and a passion for uh, Mexican regional music, specifically a genre called son jarocho. And... Funny enough, at that performance at the Universal Amphitheater, one of the other ensembles who played in that show uh, called Los Ensontles played this genre of music, Son Jarocho, and were on their way to Veracruz, the homeland of that genre, to produce a documentary. And they happened to learn from our backstage interactions that I was very curious about learning this music um, and that I was like, you know, listening to recordings at home and trying to teach myself. And so they said, why don't you come with us to Veracruz? And I had no idea what that meant. My parents had no idea what that meant. And they said, okay, sure, take her. 13-year-old me going to Veracruz with a bunch of strangers who I didn't really know to make this documentary about this genre that I was very curious about. And so we get to Veracruz, and this is my first experience in a real, in a rural rancho setting, a ranch setting. And uh, we go to a place called El Hato, which is actually a very 
special place in the tradition of the Son Jarocho um, that is very tied to its origin. And Veracruz is actually an important place in my family lineage. My father's father is from Veracruz, and some of my aunts were born there. Um, and so there's a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, family tie to that place as well. And, you know, my my first few days there were really jarring. I had never been in a place without like running water and electricity and, you know, the the ranch life. That was something that was completely foreign to me. And as like what I thought was a, you know, 13-year-old valley girl, white girl situation, I was very resistant to what that experience was going to be until we got to our um, first fandango, which is the expression of that tradition. It's the uh, the party at which everyone gathers, musicians, dancers, children, families, um, and they co-create this music in this space. They improvise poetry, they improvise the music, they, you know, dance at will and uh, follow a progression of the evening and you know, asking for permission to be in the space, uh, you know, filling that space with beauty and poetry, um, and then leaving it gently. It's just such a beautiful tradition that I had never fully experienced until that day when I saw so many, specifically women around me, who were playing and improvising and dancing at such a high level, and who really physically kind of looked like me that I had never seen before. And for the first time, I thought, wow, they are so beautiful. What they are doing is so beautiful. And that triggered something in me, which is like, wait, I'm also a part of this. I'm also from here. Maybe I am also beautiful as a Mexican person, as a brown Mexican woman. And I thought about, you know, is it, how can I make a life or a career for myself by honoring and preserving and being curious about these types of traditions and how women show up in them. And so this was literally 13-year-old me deciding in the middle of rural Veracruz that I wanted to be an ethnomusicologist, that my deepest curiosities were actually about how and why people made music and the conditions that we created for music to come into in our lives. And so... In that moment, something was triggered in me that helped me understand that my role in the world was not just to be an artist myself, but to organize and tell stories and help artists find and understand their own meaning. Mm, so dope. Uh, what is the, uh, Did that documentary get made? Yeah, it's called Buscando al Mono Blanco. Tight. Uh, go listen to that, people. Uh, go watch it. <laughs> watch it and listen to it. Before becoming the chief of staff at Juilliard, Hasmin had several jobs in other educational institutions. And this is where she planted that seed to give students the opportunity to discover their talents. Here's one example of many on how she's contributing to keep the performing arts a diverse space. I founded a program at the Colburn School in Los Angeles called Fortissima which is an artistic and leadership development program for young women of color in classical music, uh, for pre-college-aged young women to empower and um, inspire them to pursue professional-level training in music. Systemically, women of color are still struggling to find adequate 
resources and representation in this field. And so the intentionality behind this program was honestly to fill a void that I felt as a young woman of color coming up in classical music, which is that I didn't feel I had mentors or, you know, colleagues and community who shared my experience. And that is something that felt so lacking for me. I also lacked the emotional and uh, professional tools to help myself in some ways. Um, And so I wanted to create a program that could help young women not just be prepared to take up space in these, you know, conservatories or orchestras or, you know, the field at large, um, but to do it with a clear sense of vision and intention and to show up for it as themselves and not just as people who want to assimilate. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're whipping out the violin. Hasmin is going to talk to us about classical music. Stay with us. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. And we are back with one of the top movers and shakers and samurais of the performing arts, Hasmin Morales. Um, can we pull back the world of classical music for a bit? Uh, it is not like other genres. It's not as exposed. It's it's everywhere, but it doesn't feel like... I could tell someone to name a pop hit um, or a pop artist, and I'm not sure many people could name after your Mozart and your your box, and maybe they don't name those. They probably do. It just doesn't seem as mainstream, especially for brown folks. Why is that? Honestly, part of that is intentional. There has been a culture around classical music, especially in the U.S., as a class marker for rich folks who wanted this to be an exclusive privilege for them. They wanted to be seen in the orchestra hall. They wanted to be, they wanted their names up on that marble wall. Um, And also the systemic disinvestment from public arts education has also hindered the development and curiosity of millions of brown kids to uh, inquire about this music. And so that's, that's you know, on one hand, it's intentional. On the other hand, I would argue that uh, to a certain degree, classical music is actually a part of your life, and you probably just don't call it that. Um, you know, the actual classical period is a very limited part of what we consider the classical canon or repertoire. And even then, as a genre, it's constantly expanding and changing. And so I would say that even, like, film music, for instance, the, you know, the soundtracks that you're listening to a movie that trigger the emotions that you feel when you're watching that scene is classical music. The theme to Succession, in my mind, you know, written by mm-hmm. Nicholas Bertel, a Juilliard alum, um, is classical music. And so I think also the consciousness to like what 
can classical music be um, deserves a little bit more attention. What can classical music be? In my mind, it's music that requires my full attention to some degree. Like, I know my husband, for instance, loves to study with Bach and that a lot of people use this as, like, background music. And I totally get that. And that's also, like, a totally fine purpose. Um, But in my mind, it's actually something that demands my full attention, that tells a story of its own. And, you know, I used to be part of a a poetry organization called Get Lit that says uh, classic doesn't mean old, it means good. That it's like excellent in some way. And so I think my my vision for what classical encompasses is ever growing and like something that is complex and nuanced and that sparks my curiosity in that way becomes classical. Carlos, you just got called out. You being basic <laughs> with Bach. <laughs> I love a basic Bach moment. Listen to it fully. Stop multitasking Bach. Hashtag stop multitasking Bach. Um, <laughs> was was classical music in its history always, uh, though, elite? Or was it for the people? You know, or was it always like only a handful of people got to go see this thing? Or was it like on the radio? I ask because there's, uh, there's this great kid on like uh, Instagram, TikTok, and he'll, he'll, he'll like have a caption up and be like, imagine going through a breakup in 1805 and Straczynski drops this. You know, like, I think it's so I love those videos because they're so real. They're so true because what you you said is actually the reality, which is that, you know, yes, classical music in some way has a long history of being tied to wealth in that it was often a patronage model that allowed composers, say like Mozart, to write such prolific, you know, amounts of work. But in the end, it was social music, it was dance music, it was the music of the day, you know? And so those those videos, I think, actually capture a real sentiment that, like, yeah, what if you did go to, through a breakup and, like, you're listening to Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, second movement, you're just crying, you know? Like, even me, still to this day, I'm crying in the hall listening to that. So it's real. That's so funny. I love I love all of those. Luckily for all of us, classical music is just one click away. Thanks to all these music streaming apps and YouTube. And most recently, the psychological drama Tar, starring the one and only Kate Blanchett, gave us this glimpse into this world through the eyes of a world-famous conductor. But not everything seems so glamorous. Uh, okay, you've seen Tar? I've seen Tar. What'd you think? Is it true? Is it real? What's the drama? What drama can you share? Where are the scandals <laughs> at? I will say Tar hits close to home in a lot of ways. It felt quite real. I mean, even something as silly as like Mozart in the Jungle, which is another like sort of pop representation of of this world, plays on a lot of really true ideas and stories and experiences. Um, Kate Blanchett was also a genius in it. I'll just say that. Um, And it's not without its issue, but I will say that it does speak to a lot of the power dynamics that are still pervasive in classical music and the sort of importance of that power and prestige and how much value that continues to have in the field.
Uh, it's something that makes me extremely sad. I used to be uh, an educator. I did a lot of teaching artist work, and it was super sad to see empty rooms with no instruments. It was super sad to see gyms with no, like, <laughs> fucking balls, <laughs> like, no backs, yeah. like, with nothing in them. Um, schools with nothing. Last year, New York City Education Department had a huge budget cut, a $15 million cut from the $21.5 million budget for arts education for middle and high schools. How does this end? Why does this keep happening? I think it's a part of a larger systemic disinvestment from public education. And to me, it's especially concerning that arts are always the first on the chopping block because, in my mind, the arts help prepare students in all areas of life. They help students express themselves, which is such a critical skill in the creative economy that we're moving into. I'm even thinking about, like, AI and ChatGPT and all of these developments and how we will continue to interface with this technology, so much of it is still about creativity. How can you create a prompt that gives you what you need from this AI? How can you create content, you know, as a creator to, you know, sustain yourself if that's the avenue that you choose? Or how are you being, cre- how are you showing up in a creative way to your, you know, corporate job, that sort of thing. So these are skills that feel so essential and the fact that they are cut without any sense of, um, I don't know, emergency that I feel about it is is really concerning, Um, but also speaks to the broken model that we're living in in the U.S. where we divest from public education and then rely on the nonprofit industrial complex to fill the gaps. And the nonprofit industrial complex, as you know, is funded by the ultra-wealthy. So then the ultra-wealthy get to determine what those gaps, how those gaps are filled and for whom they are filled. And so, you know, oftentimes it's it remains that low-income students and students of color are the ones who are continuously left out. You work at a very prestigious university. USC, some might say, was a prestigious university. Do you find that the children going to this prestigious university are public school kids or are they private school kids? And I imagine you also work in a field that is expensive to pick up. You know, it ain't expensive to pick up a basketball, but it is expensive to pick up a violin. That's absolutely right. And I'd say both. Because of the gap filler of the nonprofit industrial complex that I that I mentioned earlier— I worked deeply in that field, especially in L.A., in a pipeline program at Colburn where we were recruiting students as young as, I'm not joking, seven months old to start performing arts studies. Um, And Colburn, at least, invested in those students for as long as they wished to study. So through their high school and conceivably postgraduate studies that they could complete at Colburn. And only to say these programs... have popped up sporadically around the United States that have enabled low-income students and students of color to pursue this type of training without barrier. Um, But they are still pretty unique in their success. Only to say that 
at Juilliard, where I find myself now, there is a pretty good mix of both. Of, yes, students who had, uh, you know, privileged access to this type of training and also those who made their way through, you know, public education and Sistema-based music education systems that they, you know, just happened to have great teachers and excel in and made their way to Juilliard um, and then are faced with a new set of challenges, which is like, how do I afford to live in New York? How do I afford college tuition? Um, And so... The other thing I'd add is that, especially at Juilliard, the rate at which we are um, welcoming students with financial need is increasing. And so that tells me, actually, that these pipeline programs are working, which is a great thing, but also increases our level of urgency to address the affordability crisis for these young artists to level the playing fields, to give them an equal start um, as to the degree that we can as they undertake their college studies. Is there anyone you want to put on blast? Anyone you are working with? Anyone you admire? Anyone? Anyone? And you just want to shout out? Uh, my husband, my husband is a person actually who I work very closely with, who, um, I sometimes have to be the, the, the megaphone on because this man is such a quiet, uh, mover and shaker himself, um, who is working in a sort of parallel track to me in many ways, um, in his own quest to empower artists of color and artists of marginalized identity. So Carlos Hernandez. Yo, Carlos Hernandez. He truly is the man I support this shout-out. I couldn't do it without him. Thank you, Hashmin, for stopping by the Brown Enough Studios. You are an incredible changemaker in person, and we love to see it. I will see you for dinner. We have gotten some amazing, amazing responses to our call-outs. The stories y'all are sending in are absolutely incredible. And so I'm going to hit you with one more. I am looking for stories about meditation. Yes, meditation. Do you meditate? Do you feel that meditation is accessible to you? Have you ever been the only brown person in a meditation class or yoga studio? Tell us everything. Send us your stories in an email or as a voice memo to brownenough at stitcher.com or just DM me on Instagram. You could wind up on a future episode. You just might. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher Studios. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabriela Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Abby Aguilar. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Peace and love. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. 
So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.